You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Wow. Hard to believe we're in the middle of November already. But Ron, you know how I know it's that time? How's that? It would be your Patriots, yeah. They're beginning to separate themselves from the rest of the pack. Just like the leaves. Do. Like the leaves, separating them. Not the maple leaves, no. <laughs> the Patriots, just like they do every time this year. In fact, you know, I don't think there's anyone, Ron, more successful in November and December, or for that matter, January, too, than your New England Patriots with Tom Terrific. <laughs> You're unbelievable. Your man love is sick. <laughs> You're a sick man. Uh, yeah, no, they've been good. They've been good. Now, they did go 10 years between uh, Super Bowls, but hey, that happens. But other than that, they've been, they've been good, and they're... Uh, uh, they're good again, and and one of the reasons they're good is everybody else stinks, frankly. <laughs> Awful, the AFC. Awful. Well, well, as most people should know, the Patriots are in Mexico City this weekend for a game versus Ron's Oakland Raiders. Ron will be there. So, Ron, I'll ask you, how's your Spanish? Uh, can you say, donde esta el baño, or quiero una cerveza? Because that's all you may need. My biggest concern is, donde esta volcano? <laughs> <laughs> I do not want the volcano blowing up 35 miles from where my hotel room is. Well, don't they install the volcano? Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> Hopefully it's not close enough to you. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. But, Keep an uh, eye those earthquakes, too, Ron. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. Nothing like a little earthquake and a little uh, volcano or 10 to make you nervous. Well, well, Goose, uh, you good with games in Mexico? Not not volcanoes. Forget Mexico. But you good with games in Mexico, Lunder, or wherever the NFL wants to market its next T-shirts or hats or whatever? Now, travel to a foreign country further stresses an NFL travel schedule that's already has games played on Monday, Thursday, and coming in December, Saturday nights. I think the quality of play has been impacted negatively, and frankly, I'd rather see them play games in Birmingham, Memphis, Portland, and San Antonio than London and Mexico City. Yeah, well, I'm with you. But uh, to celebrate the NFL goose going to Mexico, we have everybody, Ulysses Harada from Primero y Diez. That would be first and ten. To talk about the Pats and Raiders, we also have former running back Fred Taylor to make his Hall of Fame case for us, as well as former defensive tackle Fred Smurlis, a guy, Ron, that would like to see in the Hall, as well as former Raiders executive, Raiders special here, John Kingdon, who's just written a book on Al Davis. Um, and Ron's not off to Mexico until this weekend, but we're going to go there right now, because up next, we're going to be visiting with Ulysses Arata from Primero EDS. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, as we said, Ron will be in Mexico City this weekend along with the Patriots, Oakland Raiders, and our next guest, that'd be friend and contributor to the Talk of Fame Network, Ulysses Harada of Primero EDS, which if you don't know it, it's the biggest football website in Mexico. Hey, Ulysses, it's Clark, Rick, and Ron. Como esta? Hello, guys. How are you? I'm really glad to talk with you again. Uh, hello, Clark, Rick, and Ron. Uh, we're ready for some football here in Mexico City. Wow. He's ready for us. He's ready for, like he's ready for Ron? <laughs> uh, we're ready for Ron. I, I promised him tequila, so we're cool. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Is that before, after, or during the game? Hopefully during. <laughs> Hopefully during, after, and before the game. So I, I don't know how she's going to work. I don't okay. know, but, but he's a pro, so, so cool. How are you guys? Ready Good, thank football. you. So, Ulysses, uh, 
What's the atmosphere down there these days? I mean, are people excited about the return of the Raiders and or Ron? Uh, people are excited about seeing Tom Brady. That, that's the thing here. Uh, uh, people, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of of interest in this game. No, uh, there's a lot of activities here in Mexico City. We have like these helmet positions. Uh, we're gonna have fan zones, big events, big TVs. Uh, everybody's ready for for the for the game, and the game is really good. Uh, you got the Pats that are fighting for the number one seed, and you got the Raiders that are still alive on the playoff picture. So. It should be a really good game. No, people are really excited. Uh, the, the ticket sold out on 25 minutes uh, on, on August. So, so yeah, we are ready for some football. How, how many tickets? Uh, it's going to be like uh, 80,000 80, tickets. Uh, people, I think, they, they buy about like 7,000, uh, 70,000 uh, tickets, and the rest are for the sponsors, that kind of stuff. But... It's going to be packed. No, last year we we're uh, over eighty thousand people, and we expected the same number. Listen, I know you and your site have done extensive surveys on football fans in Mexico. So tell us, who is the most popular team in Mexico, and who is the most oh. popular player? All right, the most popular team are the Pittsburgh Steelers. Are still on number one, and they are uh, close with the Dallas. Your Dallas Cowboys. They are one and two. And that's because uh, football became really popular in Mexico in the 70s. So you got the Steel Curtain, you got Tom Landry's Cowboys, and then you got the 49ers on, on the 80s. The number three, the most popular team, are right now the Pats. And that's a story I'm doing uh, for the Boston Herald, uh, that how the Pats became one of the most popular NFL teams, and everybody loves a winner. No, uh, football has become really popular here in Mexico in the last 15 years, and was the best team in the last 15 years, the New England Patriots. And about popular players, I think the first one uh, right now, uh, it should be Tom Brady. No, Or do you love the guy, or do you hate the guy, or do you want to steal this jersey? So I, I don't know who is that. But yeah, I want to steal it. his jersey. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, ask this guy, Mauricio Ortega. No? So, 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 yeah, uh, that's the Mexico connection with the fans. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we- well, you know, Ulysses, oftentimes these international sites don't always get the best of games. Historically, it's kind of been that way. But as you mentioned just a minute ago, it's not the case this time. Uh, so what does it feel like to have your home city hosting what is legitimately a big and important NFL game? Well, uh, just before the season, uh, we could be talking about this could be the game of the season. Now, before everything collapsed with the Raiders. And this is a really good game. And I'm so glad that we do not have the London game. No, that 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 that's a great thing. And well, last year it was it it's also was a really good game. The Texans and the Raiders were uh, NFL playoff team. So I think uh, Mexico is getting really good games. You no, know? and that helps a lot for for you know for all the anticipation for the game for the fandom here in Mexico. And and we're really glad to have the Pats and the and the Raiders. And that's the first time that a ongoing NFL champion that are the Pats. It's playing outside the U.S. the next season. So that's cool. We're speaking with Ulysses Harada, Premier E. Diaz, and we're really glad to have him on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And Ulysses, the last time we saw you, Tom Brady won his Super Bowl and lost his jersey. But as you know, it was found later, and it was found in Mexico with a member of the international media, not you, but a member of the international media. So what steps should the NFL or Tom Brady or Ron Borges take to make sure Tom Brady leaves with his jersey this time? 
first of all, first of all, do not trust trust nobody. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no. The thing is, uh, actually, uh, after that happened, the the NFL office and the NFL office here in Mexico has taken a lot of measures. No, actually, with the credential process. Uh, back in time, you can apply. Nobody, you can apply for a credential and. Um, they only need to know that it, it was a big newspaper like like this guy. No, this guy applied for for the for the credential and working at big newspaper, but he didn't cover. Uh, he didn't uh, create any NFL content. Right now they are uh, they are checking that they are real journalism to journalism that they are credential and they got really the security measures are are really tight this time. So you don't need to worry about that actually. I think Mexico City is ready. As you know, guys, on uh, September 19th, there was a huge earthquake here in Mexico City, and mm-hmm. the city was uh, partial damaged, but the, sta- the stadium is fine. Uh, uh, the city is ready, and we're going to have a big party here in Mexico City. And, and I think uh, people, uh, players are going to be amazed. The Raiders don't because they lived la- uh, last year and they got a Monday night football, but a lot of, of of people that come in from U.S. to here to Mexico are going to be really amazed by by all the things that, that we can do. And in Mexico, we care a lot about football. Ulysses, is there any level of optimism south of the border that Mexico may one day have an NFL team of its own? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, it, 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 will, it will be really cool, but I, I don't know if there is any interest on the NFL you know, to expand the number of franchises. Uh, right now, you got uh, 32 teams, and it's a perfect number for a lot of reasons, including the schedule. But the thing that that we are optimistic is that we're gonna have a plan similar to London. Now, when when the international series started, London got one game for three years, and they just started renegotiating, and and they got like two, three, and right now they got four regular season games. I think we're going to get something like that, maybe two, three games a year after 2019. I, that, that's the thing, I think. No, but uh, no, an NFL franchise, I don't think so. Why did, Not right now. Why do you think the game has become so popular uh, down there uh, where you don't uh, you know, have your own college teams or anything like that? Well, we got college. We got uh, college football here in Mexico. Uh, actually, uh, there's uh, a lot of people that that play football here in Mexico from high school to college, and we got leagues here. But we we're starting to get it a professional football league. It's starting, but even Chad Ochocinco caught a touchdown pass a, a couple of months ago. So, uh, but I think uh, the thing is one. We got a lot of NFL here, uh, and in Nash- in Mexico, you can uh, get up to seven games a week on on national TV and cable, and you got Game Pass. And and NFL has has done a lot of efforts to become global. Uh, Mexico is the second largest market in 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 uh, for the NFL, over three million fans. So people are are are, are really fans of the sports. And when you have Super Bowls like like the last year, how can you not be a fan of the NFL? 
I don't know. So, yeah. How can, how can yeah. you not? <laughs> hey, yeah, you, is, you, even, you even won a piece of that game, so you take the jersey. No, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, spe- speaking of that, because I had asked you earlier about security, I want to ask you another security question. We talked about the jersey. How about how about lasers? Remember what happened last year with the lasers? Oh, yeah. Oh, are, my God. Are, yeah. are they going to check for that? Are they going to do anything about that? Yeah. Uh, the, the, NFL, uh, the NFL office here in Mexico is trying to trying really hard to to avoid those kind of things. The problem is uh, the luxury boxes at the Azteca Stadium are like private property. It's like if you have a condom, hopefully. <laughs> Muchas gracias, and take care of Ron. Will you take those paper airplanes away from him? Would you please? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm going to take care of Ron, and, and maybe I'll send some gift for you guys. So I, I'm really glad uh, that, that that we have the NFL back. I think it's going to be a great game. So uh, we're ready for some football here, and thanks for having me, guys. It, it, it's a pleasure to talk with you. You got it, Ulysses. With you. Thanks, Thank you. Ulysses. That was Ulysses Arata, Primero EDS. Up next, Kaepernick, the commissioner. Jerry, state your case. You're listening to Talk Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, no stranger to Ron. You covered him with the Patriots, didn't you, Ron? I did. They did. I'm talking about former running back Fred Taylor. He spent almost his entire career with the Jacksonville Jaguars, where... And in this season, he held 42 franchise records, including most yards rushing in a career, in a season, and in a game. He had seven seasons of 1,100 or more yards rushing, twice averaged five or more yards rushing, and once scored 17 times in a season. He's a member of the 10,000-yard rushing club of the Florida Athletic Hall of Fame and of the Pride of the Jaguars, which is essentially the Jacksonville Jaguars Hall of Fame. And today, well, today, he's guest of the Talk of Fame Network. Fred, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys, I appreciate it. Get on with you. How's everything? Good, thank you. Um, 42 <laughs> records. <laughs> That's a lot. So which one of those is the most meaningful for you? Uh, you know, it, it was an expansion team, so it wasn't a whole lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know, ground to cover in order to break a lot of records. I don't know. It's uh, It was just a lot of them that just came you know, over time, uh, most of them from my, my my rookie year, and then over time, a, a few more here and there. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I guess uh, being a member of the the ten thousand yard, having the, the most yards in team history, you know, because we had another good running back down there named Maurice Jones Drew, right. and uh, you know, it, it, I, I pushed it up. I set the bar. Now we have another one down there, Leonard Fournette, who who's gonna you know push some of those marks. So uh, I, I think that one will give them something to really shoot for, considering the NFL has changed. It's more of a you know double-headed monster. When I played, it was every down back, you know, and uh, it's going to take a lot for these guys to try and uh, to, to get to the ten thousand yard club. It's not going to be an easy feat, uh, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how it happens. Fred, with all those accolades, you're you're not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You haven't even been discussed. So you took your case to Twitter last summer saying, and I'm quoting you, <laughs> yeah. I earn the respect on the field, numbers better than the majority of running back in the league. I still don't understand why their writers don't respect that. Then later you said, quote, not just backs that have come and gone in NFL history, but better than the majority of backs in the Hall of Fame. What caused you to go public? You know, I, I uh, just sitting at home and, uh, you know, uh, just I, I realized that, 
a year ago, it had been my fifth year out, and uh, I was eligible to be for nomination. And, uh, you know, I thought that I was worthy of a, a consideration or at least to be in that conversation as uh, soon as I was done. And um, no, I didn't hear my name, but I would hear other guys in, the, in that conversation. And I understand how it goes, and I understand, you know, a lot of times when you hear my name, you say, well, he was trapped in the Jacksonville market, et cetera, et cetera, or what have you. So I like you know what if, if I don't force the issue and at least toss it out there, then they'll just bury you. And after I talked to Terrell, you know he mentioned the same thing. He's like, yeah, you know I, I felt the same way after a while. You know you sit there and you say, okay, well uh, I think I deserve it at some point, just to be in the conversation, uh, not asking to be first ballot or tomorrow, ten years from now, but just a part of the conversation because I believe. Uh, my stats are deemed worthy of just, you know, being in the category with a lot of, you know, the guys that were uh, very good players. So I said, let me let me see, uh, vent a little bit, get it out there and see what happens. And here you are with us. So there you go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> we're, we're pretty well, you good. Know, you know, you know, but in all honesty, you know, when I have peers, you know, guys that I played twice a year before they did the, uh, the they before they realigned the divisions, you know, the, the Ray Lewis's of the world, the Ed Reeds, and you know, even Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp, all these guys, Rob Woodson, uh, even Mr. Jim Brown. You know, these when, when I hear my peers say certain things uh, in, in regards to my career and what I did on the field, you know, I never worried about the injuries as a player. I played my butt off, and that's the way you should have played the game, just reckless abandon, and that's what I did. Uh, until later, I learned how to run the ball a little bit more smart to, to be able to play another game. So when you hear my peers, you know, talk about the quality of player I am, that's what sort of, you know, uh, made me feel that I was respected as a player. Not what the writers said or the Pro Bowl votes, what have you, but when they said certain things because that's who I was competing against. So uh, just sitting back and it hit me like I, I saw YouTube and Ray Lewis and he's the best running back I ever faced. I was like, you know what? He's the one of the best linebackers ever played the game. Let me just voice my opinion because he <laughs> said so and stuff like that. And that's what matters to me. Well, you mentioned Jacksonville and, and I, I wonder, you know, if you had done the same things in New York, we'll say for the Giants that you did for Jacksonville, you think you'd still be waiting to get in the Hall of Fame? You hear that chuckle, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you know what? I think I'll have a few more Pro Bowls. The fan vote, you know, they count. All that popularity stuff, it counts. And it's a shame that it does count, but it, it does. And I understand that the nature of the game, the branding, it is. And I understand all of that. But uh, if I had been in New York, I don't know if I would be in the the, the, the Hall of Fame now or uh, a first ballot. I don't know, but I do know that I would have been in the conversation uh, prior to me ret- retiring, prior to uh, the Twitter rant. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I-, I think I would have been in a nice chunk of the conversation and maybe even a finalist, uh, you know, at this particular point in time. Who knows? But I-, I know I do have worthy numbers when you break them down and compare them to, you know, some of the guys that have been in the conversation, some of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And, and, and so it, it's going to sort itself out. 
We're speaking with former running back Fred Taylor on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Fred, speaking of the Hall of Fame, if you could show voters a signature play that you believe represents the best of Fred Taylor or maybe rewind the film to one particular game during your career that you're proudest of, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Uh, let me uh... – you know, the 190-yarder the, the against the Dolphins uh, in the playoffs still holds as an NFL record, as long as in NFL history. Uh, that was a good run, and I, I think I was about 85% that day. That was a good run uh, only because it was a Dolphin. I have a lot of family members that are Dolphins. Fans, so I tend <laughs> to pull that out and rub it in their faces. But my performance against the Steelers uh, in Three Rivers Stadium just before they imploded it, so that was the, the most – ever against the Steelers uh, defense in their 65-year history at that particular time. I think that was around 2000. Uh, 234 yards, somewhere just early in the fourth quarter. And um, it's a record that will never be broken. Four touchdowns, 234 yards against the Steelers defense. Always a great defense up there. Um, It's just an awesome night for us. Uh, a lot of cutbacks, a lot of long runs, and uh, I still have a piece of that turf in my in my uh, in my attic right now. So that'll be with me forever. Uh, and, and again, Franco Harris played there his entire career. It was 13, 13 years, I think. And uh, you know, he, he played there his entire career, and he still and he didn't have that much yards uh, in his own house. So that's that's something that holds near and dear to me. So uh, I would point that one out as a good game to say, you know what, he did that against the Steel Curtain. And he, not only that game, but my entire career, I put up great numbers against the, you know, the vaunted Steelers defense. Okay. Fred, the writers and broadcasters vote on the Hall of Fame, but the players vote on the Pro Bowl. How much mm-hmm. do you think it's hurt your candidacy that you were voted to only one Pro Bowl in your 13-year career? You know, we have to look at, I mean, it probably does hurt some. But, again, you guys control the vote. I mean, again, you're going to be able to look at the the entire spectrum of things. You know, the uh, shebang and be able to pull this out, pull that out. When we look at the Pro Bowl, right now, if if you're going to use that as criteria then and then look at what's going on with the Pro Bowl now, they even want to just get rid of the thing. You know, so what's going to be the criteria at that particular point? Would it work in my favor if they do, in fact, get rid of the Pro Bowl? Because it's a, the game itself is a joke. Uh, if they would have just taken the top three guys statistically at each position, hey, these guys earned it, you know, then I would have gotten more Pro Bowls because as a, as a rookie, which I still think they took the rookie of the year away from me when you compare the stats between my good friend Randy Moss and, and myself, and, and even in that season, I outrushed and had better numbers than Eddie George, who got the nod because he's a veteran guy. And usually, unless you're just a rookie that's just going to come out and put up 1,700, 1,500, and the other guys are 400 yards behind you, typically you will get the nod. But if there's a close contest against a more popular guy, guy who won a former Heisman Trophy winner, he's going to get the majority of the um, – of the vote because that's who the players, you know, the players, the fans, maybe even the coaches are going to consider take him into consideration. So, 
I don't really think the Pro Bowl should be a criteria that should count against me. Um, 2,500 touches. I got 4.6 per carry. Uh, a lot more than a lot of guys. 1,400. I mean, 14,000 total scrimmage yards. Um, I retired top 15. Uh, seven 1,000 yard season, six 1,200 plus. I mean, I, I have some decent numbers. Uh, same in the playoffs. Not a lot of playoffs games, but some decent numbers and some numbers that'll, you know, eventually speak for themselves against the defenses, defenses that I had to see before the realignment. The Ravens twice a year, Steelers twice a year, even in that time. The Titans were, you know, top five defense. Uh, in the NFL at those times. So if you go back and pull out the real stats against who I did it against, how many times, you know, all this other stuff and compare it to other running backs that had a little bit more success than I had during that time and were voted Pro Bowl, look at who they played against, how, how often in those defenses ranks. And then maybe, you know, maybe that will open a certain, shine a certain light on on uh, whether I'm worthy or not to deserve, you know, the vote. So, again, um, I would love to join the elite, uh, but it's not in my hands. I did the work. So I'll just, you know, leave it up to those that have the vote, and we'll see how it goes from there. Well, you not only have the numbers, uh, without question, uh, to make a strong case for yourself in the Hall of Fame, uh, but you also played for two of the warm and fuzziest guys in history, Tom Coughlin and Bill Belichick. (laughs) Which should get you something, yeah. you know. At least you, could, you know, at least get your bronze medal. You know, uh, what was the difference? Right, that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Played against the Bill Cowher, Mike Tomlin, Coach Tony Dungy, uh, Tampa, and in uh, Andes. I mean, some Hall of Fame coaches there, I think. And you know, I I don't know though. It, they know what I meant to my the impact that I brought. You know, when I came, when I played, uh, not just the stats, but the impact, the total impact to an expansion uh, team and the longevity. They they call me Fragile Fred when I Google my stats. <laughs> it's <laughs> next to my name as a nickname. I mean, who wants that nickname? But again, 13 years. Right. And uh, they tried to write me off. Going back to what Jim Brown would say when he said I was his favorite, Marcus Allen, you know, just talking to Marcus, even Thurman Thomas. Uh, it's just a lot of. You know, just a lot of uh, uh, backs that are in the hall that think I'm, you know, worthy of, of uh, joining them and donning the yellow jacket and a lot of other stuff. But, um, you know, even my offensive lineman, we only had two pro bowlers in my entire, in, in Jaguars history. Tony Buscelli being one, Leon Cersei the other one. Fred Taylor, thanks for the time and thanks for the education. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Good you luck, got man. it. Thanks, that was former Thanks. running back Fred Taylor. Up next, it's the Two Minute Drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. You guys hear that sound? That's the Two Minute Warning. Yep, it means we're almost out of time. So, Ronnie, you have this week's Two Minute Drill. Let's go to it. Okay, here we go. Roger Goodell denies he asked for $49.5 million salary, lifetime, and health insurance, and use of a private jet. What would you guys offer him? Season tickets to the Yankees, Mets, Knicks, and Rangers. That would punish him for any greed. What would I offer him? The door. Has Roger Goodell forgotten? The owners, not the employees, get the private jet. Goodell believes there should be separate rules for kings. He's forgotten he's an employee. Uh, the six-man comp- uh, compensation committee, which includes Bob Kraft, John Mara, Rooney Jr., Bob McNair, Clark Hunt, 
And Arthur Blank have sent a cease and desist order to Jerry Jones, threatening him with fines, etc. Has Jerry ever ceased or desisted from anything? Yeah, winning Super Bowls. <laughs> yeah, winning period. <laughs> uh, coaches and owners ask players to regularly think of the team and not themselves. So how is Tom Savage still working in Houston while Colin Kaepernick is unemployed? Texas is a right-to-work state that gives Savage a right to work. Ron, you call a $1 million book deal unemployed? <laughs> uh, regardless of what Mike Zimmer says, who should lead the Vikings offense forward, Teddy Bridgewater or Case Keenum? Keenum has the Vikings in first place. He's earned the right to stay on the field. Agree. Keenum, they're winning with him and without Teddy. Well, speaking of Case, Case Keenum, Casey, uh, Casey Kasem or Casey Stengel? Oscar-winning actor and Ron's neighbor in Boston, Casey Affleck. Good. Peter Case, lead singer of the Plimsolls. Up or down with uh, with on the uh, Vikings leapfrog TD celebration? Down, unless you let defensive players take shots at the frogs like the video game Frogger. <laughs> Up, if you're five years old. <laughs> Martellus Bennett told the Packers he needed season-ending shoulder surgery, then caught three passes the next week for the Patriots. Miracle cure or Bennett bailout? Bennett came to suddenly realize it was more fun to play with Tom Brady than Brett Hundley. Agree. Miracle cure, because he's with a miracle man. Tom Brady. Are the Saints another phony dome team, or are they built for Philadelphia in January? Teams that can run the ball and play defense like the Saints can withstand the cold. They're built for Minneapolis in February. That's the end of that. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Coming up, it's former defensive tackle Fred Smurlis, former Raiders exec, and now author John Kingdon, and our own Dr. Data. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You guys hear that sound? Yep, it means we're almost out of time. So, Ronnie, you have this week's two-minute drill. Let's go to it. Okay, here we go. Roger Goodell denies he asked for $49.5 million salary, lifetime and health insurance, and use of a private jet. What would you guys offer him? Season tickets to the Yankees, Mets, Knicks, and Rangers. That would punish him for any greed. What would I offer him? The door. Has Roger Goodell forgotten the owners, not the employees, get the private jet? Goodell believes there should be separate rules for kings. He's forgotten he's an employee. Uh, the six-man comp- uh, compensation committee, which includes Bob Kraft, John Marard, Rooney Jr., Bob McNair, Clark Hunt, and Arthur Blank, have sent a cease and desist order to Jerry Jones, threatening him with fines, etc. Has Jerry ever ceased or desisted from anything? Yeah, winning Super Bowls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, winning, period. <laughs> Uh, coaches and owners ask players to regularly think of the team and not themselves. So how is Tom Savage still working in Houston while Colin Kaepernick is unemployed? Texas is a right-to-work state that gives Savage a right to work. Ron, you call a $1 million book deal unemployed? <laughs> uh, regardless of what Mike Zimmer says, who should lead the Vikings offense forward, Teddy Bridgewater or Case Keenum? Keenum has the Vikings in first place. He's earned the right to stay on the field. Agree. Keenum, they're winning with him and without Teddy. Well, speaking of Case, Case Keenum, Casey, uh, Casey Kasem, or Casey Stengel? Oscar-winning actor and Ron's neighbor in Boston, Casey Affleck. Good. Peter Case, lead singer of the Plimsolls. Up or down with, uh, with on the uh, Vikings leapfrog TD celebration? Down, unless you let defensive players take shots at the frogs like the video game Frogger. <laughs> 
up if you're five years old. <laughs> Martellus Bennett told the Packers he needed season-ending shoulder surgery, then caught three passes the next week for the Patriots. Miracle cure or Bennett bailout? Bennett came to suddenly realize it was more fun to play with Tom Brady than Brett Hundley. I agree. Miracle cure because he's with a miracle man, Tom Brady. Are the Saints another phony dome team, or are they built for Philadelphia in January? Teams that can run the ball and play defense like the Saints can withstand the cold. They're built for Minneapolis in February. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, the first hour, if you remember, we spoke about the Jerry Roger feud. And it's sort of mind-numbing to think uh, what's going on. I mean, we have an owner threatening to take away or owners threatening to away draft picks from Jerry or fine him. or And this one, Goose, I love. Take away his franchise. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Jerry doesn't stop hammering Roger Goodell. But, but, I mean, listen, we know that's not going to happen. And, and and Jerry knows it. And, and so do all the lawyers waiting to pounce if it does occur. Um, so that's why someone, I, I don't, maybe Jerry, someone, but someone leaked the info to uh, ESPN, which reported last weekend that Roger Goodell is seeking an extension of $50 million annually, which he denied, plus the use of a private jet which he denied for the rest of his career, plus lifetime life insurance for his family, which he denied. Um, With all the problems, Goose, that that Roger Goodell and the league have incurred the last uh, one, two, three years, whatever, I got to tell you something. This looks very, very bad. Well, first off, Clark, you'd better be sure if you're going to hint Jerry Jones is leaking information or anything else for that matter because he's got some pretty high-powered lawyers. (laughs) Secondly, yes, this is a mess, and it's all sitting on Goodell's doorstep. If you're in football and you want to make double what Tom Brady's making, you better have documentation that proves your worth. I'm not sure Goodell has that. I'm not sure anyone in the NFL deserves to make double what Tom Brady's taking home. Oh, wow. Think yeah. about that. I, I'd second that. I'd second that. No one deserves to make more than Tom Brady, right, Ron? No one. His wife does. <laughs> yeah, well, his wife does, and she does. She does make more. Hey, uh, Ron, here's my question. Um, like Goose is talking about, I mean, uh, forget the double raise. What has he done to deserve a raise, period? I mean, l- let's say you get the oh, let's say you get the $50 million annually. I mean, that's, that's sort of, as I said, mind-numbing to me, but... After you already made two hundred million on the job, what? You, what? You, you can't buy your own Learjet. You need that for a lifetime. You can't buy your own life insurance or insurance. You need that for a lifetime for your family. What? What? What the heck's going on? Well, I mean, this? as you guys know, Rogers lived his whole life in the NFL, and this is one thing he learned from uh, NFL owners like Jerry Jones: is everything in life is about OPM. Other people's money. You spend it, you use it. That's how you get rich and stay rich. That's how they build stadiums, right? Uh, you know, seat licenses, other people's money. So he's he wants to go down the same road and fly on other people's planes and go to see other people's doctors. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but, but I have a theory. And the theory is this, that he hasn't been the same since that Ray Rice fiasco, whatever it was, three years ago or so. Um, I think that got him off his game. And, 
And it, it's not like he's been able to recover because I don't think he has been able to recover since. He, he hasn't been as authoritative. If you listen to his press conference, he's not the same. He's made, I think, some really bad decisions. Tom Brady, Tom Brady. He doesn't seem as confident or as control or as in control. And you, again, would you have to watch him at a press conference and just not the same guy. I mean, bottom line, Goose, I, he's just been off. And, and I mean, way off. Um, do you agree? You know, I'm not sure it's exclusively the Ray Rice incident. You know, I think Rogers had difficulty navigating through some very rocky waters of late, whether it was Rice or Josh Brown or Tom Brady or Colin Kaepernick or Ezekiel Elliott. I think Rogers was a lot better commissioner when the NFL waters were calm yeah. than they yeah. are now. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, he's got a he's well known to have a bad temper, and this is not a good job to have a bad temper. Uh, number one, uh, and personally, I don't think he ever recovered even from something uh, earlier than that, Clark, which was the Time Magazine cover, "New Sheriff in Town." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's fine to get that kind of pub, although owners don't particularly like it, uh, but just don't believe it. And right. I think he began to believe it, and. Uh, uh, and then it began to backfire on him. And I think now he's 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 at a point where he's listening way too much to marketing people and PR people and internal lawyers. Right. And right. none of those people are saying to him, right. hey, Roger, you work for Jerry Jones, not the other way right. around. Right. Right. I agree with you. Uh, so, so I guess my question is what happens here? I mean, Jerry's not going to back off. Owners are united against him. Or they seem to be united against him. What happens here? Goose, what happens? Yeah, we'll see. When Jerry talks money. His fellow owners generally listen. He's mm-hmm. a guy who's made his fellow owners millions. Goodell is a guy who could cost those owners millions. You know, there's still a lot of game to be played in this one. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, Goose is certainly right about uh, Jerry's, uh, you know, influence when it comes to money. But I think this one, uh, through his own doing, frankly, has turned into more about power than about money. Mm-hmm. And there's 31 other guys there that think they got a lot of power too, uh, and. You know, I just think that this is was not an issue uh, to go at them the way that the way that he did. You know, you want to move your franchise to San Antonio? Well, then you want to sue for the rights. But that's different. But this was, I think, it got too personal too fast, and I think it's gotten away from him a little bit. Yeah, no, more than a little bit. I mean, Ron, I'll be honest with you. I mean, if I'm Roger Goodell, two guys I don't want to alienate: Bob Kraft and Jerry Jones, and, right. and that's happened in the last. Year. Oh yeah, no. I, I look long term. He's. I think he's in some trouble. If he can be in trouble after you made two hundred million dollars, I mean, Goose would know what that's like. But the rest of us don't. <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I think that's a little bit of a, a, a of a long term problem for him. Uh, you're right. He's got the wrong people mad. But right now, in the short term, I think that Jerry's going thinks this. I, I think he's going to find this is a little harder to get out of than uh, than he thought. Okay, Gooseman, since Ron referenced you as our million-dollar man, um, I want to stay in Dallas because uh, I heard your favorite description last weekend, and here we go again, future Hall of Famer. Yeah, it was someone, and I don't know who it was, but I think it was someone on the Sunday Night Telecast. might have been Al Michaels, but anyway, someone referred to Dallas tackle Tyron Smith as, quote, a future Hall of Famer, unquote. Every time I hear that, I go, oh, God, Gooseman is rolling over. Um, now, he might have looked like a future Hall of Famer in absentia last weekend because of the way his subs played or didn't play against Atlanta. But Tyron Smith, future Hall of Famer? Winston Hill went to eight Pro Bowls and won a championship with the New York Jets. I don't recall anyone ever dubbing him a future Hall of Famer. Smith has half as many Pro Bowls and no championships. Need I say more? <laughs> 
You know, it's funny when I first heard that, Clark, about uh, Tyron, I said, Isn't that the guy who plays quarterback for the Bills? Oh, no, no, that's Tyrod. <laughs> that's Tyrod. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Tyrod wasn't a future Hall of Famer last week either. <laughs> no. Wow. That was no. quite the performance. He, he was a, fu- he a future ER resident. Things keep going the way they're going to Buffalo. Uh, yeah, well. Okay. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Rick Gosselin's no future Hall of Famer. You know why? Because he's a current Hall of Famer. That's right. Kenton, class of 2004. He's here with his Dr. Data segment. Gooseman, where are we going today? Well, in honor of Ron's trip to Mexico City this weekend, I thought I'd dwell a bit on the NFL's international history. The NFL first started exporting its, exporting its product in 1978 when it sent the Eagles and Saints to Mexico City to play an exhibition game. Since then, the NFL has played 70 games on foreign soil, 40 in the preseason and 30 in the regular season. This will be the sixth time apiece the Patriots and Raiders have traveled abroad to play a game. The team that has spent the most time abroad has been the Buffalo Bills, who have played internationally a dozen times. But six of those games were played in Canada as regular season contests in Toronto from 2008 through 2013. The San Francisco 49ers are next with 11 international games, followed by the Dallas Cowboys with 10. The Cowboys to date have played the most games in Mexico, four, well, the 49ers have played the most games in Japan, three. The team that has played the most games in England, surprisingly, is the Jacksonville Jaguars with five. But the small market Jaguars have been assigned a regular season game in London each of the last five seasons. All told, the NFL has played in eight different countries. Australia, England, Germany, Ireland, Japan, Mexico, Spain, and Sweden. The 49ers, Broncos, and Steelers have played in six different countries apiece. There's been one game in both Ireland and Sweden, and the Chicago Bears played in both. And two other quick notes. The only NFL franchise that has not played an international game yet has been the Carolina Panthers. And also the largest crowd ever to see an NFL game was 112,000 in Mexico City to see a preseason game in 1994 between the defending Super Bowl champion Cowboys and the Houston Oilers, and I believe Ulysses Herrado was at that game. He was. Gooseman, he was not alone. I was there, too. And the thing I remember about it was the headline in the paper the day of the game. Vaqueros versus the Petroleros. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, rain like hell that day, by the way, Gooseman. But, uh, so what, what country would you bet is, is next on their radar? China or Russia? Germany. If the NFL is considering expanding to London at some point, it's going to need a companion team in Europe. Germany was the only country that embraced the old NFL Europe. In its final season in 2007, five of the six teams are based in Germany. Think Germany, Ron. Germany. Well, we're not going to Germany. We're going to commercial, guys. Up next, we're going to Ron's old neighborhood, too. That would be Oakland with former Raiders exec John Kingdon. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, for nearly 40 years, John Kingdon had one of the toughest jobs in pro football. He spent most of his waking hours with Al Davis. John first met the Raiders owner in 1978 when he was hired as an intern, and he never left, eventually becoming the team's director of college scouting and a confidant and frequent dinner partner of Mr. Davis's. Now John and Bruce Kebrick, a veteran of 30 years working with Al Davis, have written an inside look at one of pro football's most fascinating men. And no, I'm not talking about Ron. I'm talking about (laughs) Al Davis called Behind the Raiders' Shield, which tells the story of how he ran the Raiders on his way up and on his way down late in life when his health was failing. John Kingdon, thanks for joining us. 
Oh, my pleasure. Enjoying uh, talking to three uh, such uh, well-versed people in the field of pro football. We appreciate that. Maybe the nicest thing you ever said to me. <laughs> uh, you know, Al Davis to me is, is one of the brightest and most complex uh, and, dare I say, difficult uh, guys I've ever known. So how did you last as many years as you did uh, in that organization spending so much time around a so demanding a guy? Well, you know, when I started it, uh, you know, it was a fairly successful organization. It really was only the last 10 years that got really difficult uh, uh, with the lack of success of the team. And uh, But at that point, you know, people don't think appreciate how uh, difficult uh, a situation it was with Al and his physical condition. And, and you know, you get in the comfort zone and, uh, you know, you knew it, was, it wasn't going to be good those last few years. But... Uh, anyway, getting back to the beginning, he was a really, you know, like I said, he was very challenging, but it was always, uh, it was a good challenge, you know, to, to deal with someone who was so well versed in everything and, uh, and, uh, and to try and keep up with them. And, uh, you know, when I started working, uh, he would ask me to do something and I was new to the business and it was kind of hard to get something done. I said, geez, I'm having trouble doing this. And he says, don't tell me it can't be done. Just do it. And when you operate, <laughs> Under that uh, proviso, uh, it, it really uh, it, it kind of inspired you to get things done in spades, so to speak. And uh, uh, and, and it was and again, and again getting back, it was uh, it was fun. It was a challenge to keep up with him. We had a lot of success, and uh, you know he was a very bright man. And and if, if nothing else, it was always entertaining. John, in 2007, Al ignored your advice to take Calvin Johnson with the draft's first overall book pick and instead mm-hmm. took Jamarcus Russell, who became one of the biggest busts in draft history. Why didn't it work out, and what did Al miss? Well, I think uh, part of it, uh, you know, I think Al goes back to the uh, 60s and 70s when he could take players that people said couldn't do it, and by his sheer dint of will, uh, he could make them into players, and he took great pride in taking uh, players like Ethan Horton, uh, who was not a bad person, was a wonderful person, but you know, it was a first-round pick that was sort of a bust with Kansas City. He made him a Pro Bowl uh, tight end. Todd Christensen, again, another uh, second-round, uh, dare I say, bust with the Cowboys, became a, a Pro Bowl tight end with us, things like that. And I think what changed uh, two things. One, Al simply didn't have the physical ability to keep up with somebody like Jamarcus. And, and secondly, uh, things had really changed uh, on a financial level in this league where, you know, back then, you know, he could kick a couple extra bucks to the players here and there, and it was a big thing. With Jamarcus, uh, he started out with $35 million, and I think at that point he pretty much fulfilled all of his dreams and aspirations in pro football and uh, had just a, uh, was just so devoid of any sort of self-pride. Now, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that bad, and uh, I don't think anyone did that he would really be so uh, care to lack so lack so much care and, and self pride. You know, but uh, you know, it's like Todd Marinovich just to jump back to another problem. You know, I brought up all the problems. I didn't know he'd become a heroin addict and things like that. But uh, again, I think Al just said, you know what, I can make this guy a player, and I think uh, maybe his uh, success in, in history kind of came back to bite him. In the, in the, later years we're speaking with john kingdon who's the former raiders executive and now co-author of al davis behind the raiders shield and, and john um it seemed to me that al was always at war with the nfl yet 
you know what? Nobody loved the league and pro football more. So why the constant battles? It make, makes no sense. Why the constant battles of the league? Uh, I think he kind of enjoyed it, uh, uh, kind of the head-on. and uh, He liked to, to take people on when you said something can't be done. Oh, yeah, well, well I'm going to do it. I don't know if it's quite so, so constant. I think he took uh, just some little pleasure in when, uh, you know, there was going to be a vote that was uh, going to be unanimous, 32 nothing. He liked to be the uh, one vote just to kind of stick it to people. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think just his nature, a competitive guy who uh, – who like to uh, you know be the alpha alpha dog in the pack? Let me ask you a follow up question. To that one friend of mine once said, actually a Hall of Fame voter, that uh, Davis versus Roselle was like, and Ron would know this, the thrill in Manila. Ali versus Frazier. They both beat their brains out and were never the same afterwards. Do you think that's fair? Uh, I think Pete probably uh, took more shots than Al did because I think Al Al enjoyed the uh, the image of the fighter. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of looked forward to these these kind of confrontations. I think uh, Pete was more of a mediator, uh, so I, I don't. Th- you know, I think I just said, <laughs> you know, kind of. I think he could probably have uh, passed the law board, uh, the, the bar exam, with all the times he'd been in court. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, I think he. Uh, I think maybe towards the end it might have uh, caught up to Al a little bit, but no, I, I think he did a good job of uh, keeping it separate from the uh, football side. Uh- as, as we both know, Al was always obsessed with speed. Uh, it led him to a lot of players, uh, a lot of great players, uh, but also to a lot of misses in scouting. Uh, you have a couple of stories of, of how he looked at speed and how it sometimes worked for him and other times against him? Well, sure. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you know, they always had to sign up uh, at the Oakland Coliseum. There would be a, a sign that said speed kills and number 21, and Cliff Branch would always go over there and point to it. I think you see it in a lot of the highlight films, and uh, I think that set the precedent for him, and he spent uh, probably the rest of his career looking for another Cliff Branch. And, uh, you know, and it kind of kind of bit him in the butt, you know. And we, we tell the story, uh, uh, you know, Al is the fastest guy at the Combine. You know, we'd be sitting there, Bruce and myself, Abe McClellan, Kent. You know, somebody would run really fast. There's your pick. There's your pick. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, and the, you know, we he liked Carlos Francis, the kid out of Texas Tech, and uh, you know, Dave McLuhan was the was the only scout that had gone in there, and Al kept asking about him, and you know, Dave said, you know, he may be fast, but he's not. I can't. I've got a guy that is a much better player. I can't even get him on the board. He says, well, well, how big is the guy? He's like five nine, and how much does he weigh? One eighty, and what's he run? Four seven nine. I said, you're crazy? What's this guy's name? He goes, Wes Welker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the worst part is uh, two years, about maybe three or four years later, Al calls me and says, how come we never talked about Wes Welker in the draft? <laughs> in, that, in that sense. So, so it kind of bit him in the butt. And, you know, Hayward Bay, Darius Hayward Bay. And I think, uh, you know, we, we had Darius Hayward Bay as a first-round pick, but not whatever was the seventh or eighth pick in the whole draft. And, and I think that really came to, to hurt Darius because uh, he really got uh, uh, dragged through the mud uh, by uh, by the media. You know, Chris Berman, you know, went on for a long time. He's got more names than catches and crabs <laughs> with the 49ers. And it really, really, it was, it was terrible. He was a wonderful young man. And, and to his credit, he worked really hard. You know, he had a bad rookie season. The next year he caught about 30 balls. And his third year, 
he really was everything we wanted. He averaged about 18 and a half yards a catch, caught 65 passes, and uh, he's still in the league with uh, Pittsburgh. But you know, Al would get focused on one guy, and and you know, he would guarantee you know he he didn't want to take any chances that this guy wouldn't be there. Uh, and he would, he would go. Uh, he would take guys higher than they should. And just, you know, it just. Uh, I don't think I put this one in the book, but uh, about a week before the draft, uh, Cleveland. It was in the paper that they worked out Darius Hayward Bay. He said, "We'll find out if they're interested in this guy." You know, when he just, I called a beat guy back there and didn't really identify myself. I said, "Yeah, so on the paper, the Cleveland's uh, working out Hayward Bay, and they had like you know, they had a pick before we did in the first round. It was really heavy. Do you think Cleveland would take him?" And the, and the reporter, I don't remember who it was, he goes, you know, the only guy that would take the take this guy that high would be Al Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, you might be onto something there. And if you put a bet down, I probably would. So, yeah. So, uh, it really, uh, he, he got focused on it. And, uh, and yet, you know, something people don't really notice is once guys made it in the league, uh, the guys that couldn't run, that we couldn't get on the board, uh, once they were really good players, uh, Al would, would, would bring him in. William Thomas, if you remember, you know, from the Eagles, sure. was just a wonderful player, but I think he was like 215 pounds when he came out, and he ran like 4'8". But, and, and uh, you know, the coach said, this is the best linebacker I've ever had. And we, you know, we put him up there, and Al wasn't going to take him, but he became a great player in the league. He was a wonderful player for us as well, and, and scouted a few years uh, with us as well. So I think once Hal realized he missed a guy and the guy became available, even though he couldn't run that well, uh, he would he would bring him in. And we had a lot of success there. Hey, John, I, I always wondered, where did the term commitment to excellence come from? <laughs> uh, well, that was there before I got here, so uh, I don't uh, – I'm not sure who came up with that as well, but uh, there, was any, there was no shortage of, uh, of terms that he liked to use. John, I've got one last question for you, and we've got less than a minute left. But Al had been a coach of the year before he moved into management. Was he unfairly hard on coaches? Do you think? Uh, you know, I think the coaches that uh, that weren't prepared to handle him—not not handle, but just uh, didn't put the effort in and weren't as, as smart as he was—had uh, problems. Uh, you know, I can just—I won't go down the list, but the guys that were successful, you know, John John Madden, Tom Flores. And, and particularly John Gruden, you know, and I would talk, you know, before Gruden, you know, we'd have coaches, we'd have the coaches meeting, and Al would bring up things, uh, what about doing this in practice? And they'd write it all down. What about this in practice? What about that? And it'd go on and on. John Kingdon, thanks for the time, and best of luck with the book. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. That's former Raiders executive John Kingdon. Up next, one of Ron's favorites, former nose tackle Fred Smurlis. You're listening to the Talk Family. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, for nearly a decade, Fred Smurlis was considered the best nose tackle in pro football. In fact, Ron, as you know, opposing coaches used to come to Buffalo in the offseason just to study film of how he played the position. And for good reason. Because when Fred first arrived in Buffalo in 1979, Chuck Knox built a defense that resurrected the Bills with Fred Smurlis as its anchor. Fred meshed with linebacker Shane Nelson, Jim Hazlitt to form the feared Bermuda Triangle. So named because once opposing ball carriers entered it, you never saw him again. And the proof was in these numbers. In 1980, the Bills defense ranked first, 81 seventh, and 1982 second, leading 
Buffalo to its first division title since 1966. Yet 20 years after his retirement, 20 years, Fred Smurlis, a former five-time Pro Bowler and three-time All-Pro, has never, ever been a Hall of Fame finalist. That's one of many contradictions about our next guest. Of course, another, Ron, as you know, is maybe the only nose tackle in history to have written a best-selling memoir. Hey, Fred, thanks for joining us. Well, let me correct you. One of the reasons you're probably not in the Hall of Fame is I'm five-time All-Pro, three-time All-AFC, NFL, and I was a four-time alternate when you're two and fourteen for four years. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny because ESPN comes up. I went back to a Pro Bowl. I missed a couple of them because no one watched our games. And they said, "Geez, you're playing well again." I said, "I've been playing well for a while, but you guys haven't been up here to watch me. It's not like in New York City, someone cuts wind and they get on front page of the news. I could I could have choked five people in the stands and ate them, and they wouldn't have known about it." Is the 9.30 show going to be as good as this one, Fred? <laughs> Every show is good with me and Borgie. When we're on the set together, we almost went to blows. You know, it's funny. People go, that guy's crazy. He was going to fight you. I said, yeah, he is crazy. And he would have fought me, too. <laughs> yeah, Fred and I did a little TV for quite a while, and we we didn't always agree. But in the end, we we walked out arm in arm because that's the yeah, kind of we guy did, he is. Because we're both alike. <laughs> no, but, you know, if they don't like you, if you're a team, and my wife said once, we had this guy that was behind me, a little turd. <laughs> and uh, I, I this is a thing, and I helped them out with a big I- I issue, and end up they ended up dumping me, and sent me to San Francisco. So why'd you help me? It's just because I'm the captain. That's what my job is. I took care of everybody. The big mouths I took care of. The good guys I took care of. And nowadays, I'm, you know, the guys come up and they see me. It's it's great because they, they had that respect. But I was going to take care of the guy, whether it's good or bad. I'm going to take care of the bad guys to protect the good guys. And some don't like it. And the coaches, if they don't have any nuts, sometimes things get out of control, you know. <laughs> yes, they do. I meant walnuts because they're good for your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love walnuts. Uh, Freddie, one of the things I, I, I wonder about this is uh, – you know, we talk about the Hall of Fame and all the things that you've done. It's been 20 years now, and you, you haven't even been considered, uh, you know, because really, oh, like Rick says. let me in. Yeah, well, what I'm wondering is, do you, do you think about it much still? Do you care about it? Does it, underneath it all, still mean a lot to you that, that well, to get in there? Well, in, in my business, I was 300 pounds. I'm a, I died to stay at 290. I played at 300, but in offseason, I'll be 320. And, but that, back then, you had a diet. And I had, I've been 225, 51 times. I was... I two gap. I'm not saying this. Go watch films better than anybody, but two gap means you sacrifice yourself for the backers. So you put a meathead in there, runs around the block, lets the center off and the backside backer, and the backside uh, guard takes you out. There's a giant hole there, right? So you don't get all the credit because most of the meatheads don't know what's going on on the field. Um, but do I get angry? No. You know what? I kind of played in a fit of rage, and uh, well, that's why I dropped down the draft the second round because I thought I was. Thought I was uncoachable, but I wasn't. I'm not, you know, I thought it was my job to beat the crap out of guys in front of me, and that's what I did. But I watched what I did, and I watched what other guys did, and I don't, I don't need someone to tell me, oh, you're an Hall of Fame, uh, and say good. I played that way. I two-gapped. I played extremely well. I always have front side player. And so I, there's guys that didn't even get, you know, there's a lot of guys that played around the league that don't get any mention that were great guys. They played with Jimmy Richard for 17 years. Phenomenal. As good as it gets. Goes to the Pro Bowl in his 12th year. How is that? So I'm not, I see guys get crapped on more. But like I said, I was, I, I know I went to see guys in the Pro Bowl that come up and say, coaches gave us your film to teach, you, teach you, them how to play two-gap because it's kind of a lost art now. But and so that was 
that to me was was the biggest compliment you can get. But um, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't want to be in a room with guys that are keeping me off. Hall of Fame, and I know who a few are. So, but not the three of us. Them. <laughs> not no, the I love Borgie. You know, so anyway, go look at my films. It's out there. I'm not just, you know, they didn't count uh, um, sacks until, what, 82. But when you're hitting by three guys, you're playing a 3-4. That's a little bit different. And you're rushing with three guys. You don't have to bring walkbackers up because I'm protecting the backers. And the ends are taking outside gap, too. And so when you can play that way, you got backers, four backers that can run instead of being tied up. And that's why we were successful. So, you know, in Buffalo, when I left Buffalo, they traded me to San Fran. They they ran play, played pass all of them. That's why you know Giants game they ran up the middle because no one was playing two gap. But <laughs> I, I mean I mean I, that really pisses me off because I, I I love Buffalo. Buffalo's like a Midwestern town. People are all friendly. You know when when you see a six four three hundred pound guy Greek guy walk around stand out pretty pretty easily and they were always so polite and supportive. So that it pissed me off that I didn't get a chance to fight. Uh, for my team to go to, to win a Super Bowl and to fight for the city, you know, so that that pissed me off. Fred, you you obviously didn't play a glamour or a stat position. So, did the induction of Curly Culp give you and all nose tackles a reason for hope? I don't think I should need hope. You know, what I mean, <laughs> I didn't ask for anyone help on the field. I didn't ask for anyone help when I was working out. All I asked was a fair shot. Curly Cobb was more of a, a 4-3 defense guy. He played a little bit of nose. So I had, I don't know who told him, I had a guy run the stats. I was the number one rated nose tackle in history of all, pro, pro, all pros, all uh, AFCs, all NFL, uh, Pro Bowls, all that stuff. But Curly, because he was the grandfather of the, the uh, nose tackle, should have got in a long time ago. Grant, you know, he wasn't, he was not that big, but really strong. I was a lot bigger than him. And did a few more things better than him. He did a couple of things better than me, or as good as I was. But he was the grandfather. I mean, there's no question he should have got it. That's embarrassing. To go, no tackle in the Hall of Fame. Do they watch football? That's a problem with guys. They say, well, this is a sack. You know, I was a defensive end. I had 144 tackles in college at defensive end. And the guy come in, Chuck says, you're going to play nose tackle. Read the helmet. I said, Rydell, what else do I do? I don't read anything. <laughs> I ran around, guys. I smashed him in the head. So... <laughs> It's just I know they don't. And if I sit down with Borgie and we watch stuff, he understood, he saw the film. I send him a you, – you can put a highlight film together, right, and put 50 plays or 100 plays of a guy, virtually anybody that started for a few years. But when you're const, consistent at taking care of – you know, Shane Carlin called me up uh, after the year with, with a little kid in the middle, said, you got to get back here. That guy – and he chopped his legs up. He ended up cutting his career short because the Senate kept getting out. So Shane, I would have loved to have been up there. And I was in Forcer, me and Tally, you know Daryl Tally? We were the enforcer. You mess with our guys, we're going to hurt you. And we, they know it. And they see it on film. So that gives them that pioneer justice. I'm not going to mess with these guys because they're going to get me. And when you take that element out, like he said, you know, Tally during the Super Bowl, and you don't get that type of element in there, when guys are pounding at you, it changes the dynamic of things. So. And I, I just think that a lot of guys that watch football don't understand what's going on, don't understand what the two-gap means when you're playing front side on a guy, even if you're trying to jump around you, and, and, and or you, what kind of scheme they're running. They don't know if you're running stunts or whatever. So I don't, I don't blame them. I mean, I, I blame the buff, you know, whoever was uh, – here's, here's one, for instance. When I went against the Jets the last play of the year, and I blocked the field goal, I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. 
So I blocked the field goal, and I, and I, you know, I used to hit with my, which I was a wrestler, my thumb and index finger on the top of the bone of your of your arm. So there's a bone there, so you can't pull it out. Pinned it, swam over it, and blocked it. They went crazy, right? It was great because first time on the AFC East in a long time, and the paper wrote it was one of the best plays ever. Blah blah blah. So the highlight film comes out for '88. They don't mention it. <laughs> they love mention it. Management loved you. It's just Scott Norwood kicking a field goal in overtime. Well, how do we get in overtime? The guy was on a 38 yard line, never missed a ball from the inside the 40. And I'm like, wow. And then I watched the Cleveland game. I made three tackles right off the bat, tip a, tip a ball. And the announcers are saying, Art still did it. And, well, Art still's black and he's 6'8. So it doesn't look like me. It's a smirrish on my back. So I don't know what the hell is going on. But not putting that film in there, that, uh, um, in the highlight film, I said, something's up. Why would they not do that? So you tell me, Borgie, why they do that? I'm, stu- I was st- I'm stunned. I'm stunned that they didn't love you like a son. We're, we're, I'm probably we're speaking son. and laughing with Fred Smurlis on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at talkoffamenet. And, and Fred, since we're mentioning Curly Culp and uh, defensive tackles, why, why do you think so few pure nose tackles are in the hall? Because of stats. When the Buffalo Bill, Patriots were playing um, uh, at Baltimore, when Rice ran that 87-yard play, remember that? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah in the play. All right, how'd that happen? And it's very because simple, it was, but most people never know how that happened. Oh, because they didn't slide, the lineman couldn't get slide no. down there. There was a huge gap, no? They doubled the, get, you watch it again, they doubled the nose tackle, right? As soon as that uh, linebacker to the side of the guard um, hitting the nose tackle has to ram him, and he's got backside, and then the nose tackle's got front side. So what happened was the linebacker felt very slow. So they hit the nose tackle, and he wasn't there yet. So as they hit, Wolfhook, got, the center was able to get control of Wolfhook, and the guard slipped off and hit the and hit the running uh, linebacker and pushed him off to the his left to the right, and the guy and, and uh, Rice ran right between them. So he right. should have hit that, sealed that, played that backside gap. But because he didn't, that caused that gap right there, and that's how important that is. So those two, they were trying to find gaps because you get an extra guy to block the guard, but that nose tackle has to be stout, quick, and know how to take things on. And there's an instance why the linebacker didn't do it right, Nose tackle didn't do that bad a job, but he still got pinned a little bit, and that caused the problem. So if you get a nose tackle, and I can jam the guy, lock him out, get extension, and so either way that guy goes, I don't let go until he's on that, he breaks, and I go front side. <laughs> so if you don't do it correctly with your angles right, you can't get off like that. Right. So well, quick, quick, quick question, Fred. We got about thirty seconds here. You mentioned uh, the double team block on Wolfork, and obviously you play that position. You're doubled all the time. Yet yeah. you played the most consecutive games of nose tackle in history. I believe 110. How did you survive? And how wait, wait, many times? Another reason. 157 consecutive starts. Wow. That's. Hey, you know what? That, that's a lot. How did you survive? And maybe got a shot at it. How did you survive? And how many days did you feel good? You know what? I was built differently than a lot of guys. I could run laterally as fast as I could run forward. But one thing I had, and a lot of guys didn't have it, is the vision. I could inst- I could see and analyze it instantaneously and make that move. And I didn't run in strides like a lot of guys outside backers or receivers. I took a thousand little steps, so my feet were always moving. 
So it's very seldom, even if you chop lock me, my foot would not be on the ground. So therefore, I wouldn't get those, you know, those chops at my knees and stuff. But okay. now I have 26 operations. I have uh, six elbow uh, nerve transplants. I got a t- titanium knee. Right. But hey, you know what? Life goes on. You know, it's funny when I when I touch myself on the shoulder and I, I don't can't feel anything in my hands. So I look around and see who's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I could beat up any nose, any 60 year old nose tackle right now, boy. And probably some that are 40 and one named Nam Kinsu. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, you got to watch that. I, that, that was, I got so sick, and then a Gruden's talking. And it's like the candy man telling me how good everything is about to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Newton, Cam Newton gets up. If I ever, that guy did that to me in the game, I'd rip his sack off. Doing that, dancing on the ground and all that shit. God. Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. You got, now you got me angry. <laughs> Fred Smurless. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the entertainment. Thank you, guys. It's been a slice. It's been a slice. <laughs> oh, man. You're the best, Freddie. Thanks, right, Fred. Guys, see ya. That see was ya. former defensive tackle Fred Smurlis. Up next is the two-minute drill. Hope it's as good as Fred was. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, I'm looking at the clock. You know what, guys? We're just about out of time. That's the two-minute warning. In fact, we just have another left. Ron. No, love for you. The two-minute drill. Here we go. From Mexico, so take it away. <laughs> Who's the greatest rushing quarterback of all time? Michael Vick, Randall Cunningham, Steve Young, Cam Newton, or Fran Tarkington? Tim Tebow. I didn't hear you mention Bobby Douglas. <laughs> Good one, please. Are the Bills' hopes of ending their 17-year playoff drought fading after giving up 298 rushing yards and 47 points to the Saints? Yeah, Ron, but look at it this way. They get to spend January in Florida. Their playoff hopes started fading in August when they traded their best wide receiver and best cornerback to NFC teams. Can Phillips Rivers read a defense? Nope. He's in concussion protocol. When you're playing against the NFL's best best pass rush, he'd better be a speed reader. <laughs> Hugh Jackson is 1-24 with the Brownies, who haven't won a game in two years. Should he be banished to the dog pound? No, no. He should just be banished, period. Put, put owner Jimmy Haslam and football ops exec Sassy Brown on the dog pound with him. This is the only franchise in the NFL trying to prove it can win without a quarterback. Will an erupting volcano make the NFL rethink Sunday's Patriot Raider game in Mexico City? No, sir, because an erupting volcano still plays linebacker in Cincinnati, and nobody seems to care. No, but an erupting Ron Borges may get their attention. <laughs> Should someone take the challenge flag away from the Bears coach John Fox after Sunday's fiasco when he cost his team the ball at the Packer one-yard line? No. Someone should take the Bears away from John Fox. John Fox was a lot smarter coach when Peyton Manning was his quarterback. What would you do with Bengals bad boy Vontez Perfect, who seems to like early showers? I'd send him to a Louis Vuitton store in China. <laughs> Trade him to the Raiders. <laughs> Eli Manning will pass his brother Peyton this weekend on the Ironman list when he makes his 209th consecutive start. Any chance he catches Brett Favre, the all-time leader, at 297? Ron, Eli's only chance of catching Brett is as a receiver in one of those Favre-Wrangler commercials. Not with his current blocking front. Falcons quarterback Matt Ryan has reached 40,000 passing yards faster than any quarterback in history. Will he ever reach a ring ceremony? Already has. Guy's married. Ringless in Seattle. That's the game. We want to thank Fred Taylor, Fred Smurlis, John Kingdon, and Ulysses Harada for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. 
They're all there. Or you can find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us this time and on this station next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.